Thanks for tuning in to Goopfellas. We'd like to thank our friends at Kenneth Cole who helped to make today's episode possible. I know not all guys are like this, but I like to pay attention to what I'm wearing. When you look good, you feel good. But you can't feel good if what you're wearing, especially on your feet, is uncomfortable. As a chef, I spend a lot of time on my feet, and I'm always in the market for a comfortable pair of shoes that don't sacrifice on style. Gentle Souls by Kenneth Cole is a collection of modern footwear made with comfort and style in mind. They're actually pillows filled with flax seeds placed inside each footbed, which are designed to mold to the shape of your feet, plus memory foam for other key pressure points and luxurious leather inside and out. To get 20% off your first pair of Gentle Souls, head to kennethcole.com and use code GS20. That's GS20. What's up, Seamus? Sorry, I'm eating crunchy pork rinds. <laughs> How are you, man? Uh, Welcome back to New York. I, I'm, I love the city. Back here for Goop, fellas. And, uh, yeah, so what do you, how's life here? Why are you here? For, for a week. You're living in LA now. You're already yeah. back. Well, no, yeah, I was, I was here for, um, for a few events and, uh, we have a big dinner for Goop tonight that we're, we're yeah. doing, you and I are doing. And, uh, yeah, just coming back to, you know, as Elvis said, TCB, taking care of business. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, I'm here. I'm like, I was just here you last were just week. Here. Just here last week. I'm here today. And I'll be here in like two more days. I have to go back to some patients, but oh wow, you're back and forth. Oh my god, the life of a book tour. Yeah, back and forth. But I have patients. Like, yeah, it's going awesome, and people are liking the inflammation spectrum, and yeah, I'm digging it. That's so. great. That's awesome. So um, today we have some. some yeah, speaking cool. of travel, like this is kind yes. of we're, we're junior varsity travel compared. Yeah, to Yeah, we have nothing compared to Dan Kois. Uh, he's a writer. He's an editor at Slate Magazine, and podcast host of Mom and Dad Are Fighting. He's also the author of the book, How to Be a Family. The book is Dan's story of how he decided that for one year, he basically ditched his overscheduled life in Washington, D.C. to live all over the freaking world with his wife and two daughters in search of finding depth, meaning, and togetherness with his family. So. Yeah, they choose four different locations. Um, they initially go to New Zealand and then to uh, to the Netherlands, Costa Rica, and then they end up in Kansas before going home to Arlington, Virginia. It's a really interesting conversation for anyone who's who's ever thought about uplifting their life and, and yeah. just going on an incredible adventure with their family. And what I love about it is that this was really for Dan and his wife. Alia was very much... It came out of, a, of wanting to, to, feeling as though their family was kind of disjointed. They weren't a single unit and doing something outside of their comfort zone to bring them together. And, and in the end, it did seem to bring them back together to where he said they really feel like they're a team of four now, which I thought was really cool. Really great. So let's get to our conversation with Dan Coyce. What was like the tipping point that made you decide, shit, we need to take a break. We need to step out of side of our lives. Uh, well, thanks for having me. Um, yeah, it's a fantasy that I think that we, like many families, had had for a long time. We, My wife, Alia, and I had sort of batted it back and forth for years and years. Like, well, what if we could just step away for a while and travel and, like, check out how, you know, what the other lives we could be living are. And there are a couple of tipping points. You know, the sort of slow, the frog in boiling water thing that was happening was, mm -hmm. as for so many parents – both our um, work responsibilities were increasing slowly and slowly and more and and we're getting more and more grueling. Our kids were getting more and more attached to their phones and more and more busy in their sort of day-to-day -day life aside from that. Um, and we were spending less and less time with them 
you know, it seemed like every week. And we became aware as 2015 and 2016 went on that we weren't, we didn't really feel like we had a family identity, the four of us. Mm-hmm. It also felt like everything was, you know, at, at sort of the edge of disaster. I don't know if you guys have this feeling sometimes about your families, but I compare it in the book to feeling like, like the air traffic control system in the United States where it's like, it works basically, but like then there's a thunderstorm in Omaha and air traffic to LaGuardia is fucked up for two days. Mm -hmm. Uh, Like it just felt like any tiny thing that could happen would just like break like the very tenuous hold our family had on like keeping it together. Um, And then the real tipping point was an actual, you know, act of God, like a actual weather event, much as it is, is the case for the air traffic control system. Mm-hmm. But it was a huge blizzard that we had on the East Coast in the in February of um, 2016, uh, late January, early February, and it shut down the city. I live outside of Washington, D.C. It shut down the city completely. Our kids' school was canceled for over a week. They missed seven total days of school and were out of school, including weekends for 10 consecutive days. And it's just like every sort of rubber banded and duct tape thing we had keeping our family together just like absolutely collapsed in the face of this calamity. And we were at each other's throats. My wife and I both felt like our jobs suffered substantially. Like our coworkers were like, oh, these guys are flakes and they can't, we can't count on them for anything. And also our kids were upset at us all the time. And also they were bored and we were yelling at them about how they were on their screens. And also we all just had cabin fever and it felt like this this thing had happened to us that in a better world would have been an adventure that we all made it through and instead was just like a torturous ordeal that we had to deal with every day and it never got better. Mm-hmm. And it was in the aftermath of that uh, that I, much to my wife's delight, just a few days later, took a work trip to Iceland mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> leaving her alone in our just recently dug out house uh, for a week, I was researching a story for the New York Times magazine about swimming pools, about municipal swimming pools in Iceland, making an argument that these pools, which are in the center of even the tiniest, shittiest little Icelandic town, were sort of the center of Icelandic culture and happiness, that that it was because of those pools, at least in part, that Iceland is among the most contented, most satisfied place on earth. Mm. And I met all these different Icelandic families who had made the pools part of their day-to-day routine. It's where kids saw elders and grandparents and hung out with them. It's where teenagers hung out together to escape from their parents a little bit and have social time. It's where parents and small children bonded. There's this very Icelandic tradition to take your six-year-old to the pool right before bed, you know, at 8.30 or 9, um, and put them in the hot tub, even on a freezing cold night, for 20 minutes and let them, like, really cook in there, and then whisk them home and put them straight into bed, and they go to sleep in, like, three minutes. Hmm. And it just really struck me how this simple thing in Iceland, which has no analog in the United States, had completely changed the way almost everyone lived their lives, the way every family lived their lives. And I thought, well, what are the other things like this? Like, what what should I be learning from other countries and the way that they do things about how to be happy families and how to be together that I'm not learning? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I pitched it to my wife and I said, you know, let's do this thing that we have talked about forever. Let's mm-hmm. actually do it. Let's go out and visit a place or visit places and see what we're missing and see what we can learn and have this adventure together, the four of us, that is not part of everyday life, but is instead something that we're doing together that we'll always have done together. 
That's awesome. And one of the things that you mentioned too is, is that the, this Icelandic family that you met that you're featuring had done a lot of traveling as a unit as well, and they had also considered. I think I think going to Sierra Leone or somewhere in West Africa for a long period of time was that part of the impetus, the idea of travel. Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, this idea that this family that seemed like picture perfect to me mm -hmm. um, and lived this beautiful life. Also, not only did they do a lot of traveling, they also felt a kind of similar, though less desperate sense of vague dissatisfaction with the way that they did things. Like it helped show me like how universal this is mm -hmm. and how their hunt for how they might learn to do other things different had enriched their family already and would continue enriching their family. You know, they, they had traveled all over the place. They had lived in different countries. The mother of the family worked for an NGO that had done a lot of work in Africa and South America. And the stuff they had brought back had been beneficial to them, but they still were very hungry to have more experiences. And the experiences they had 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 clearly bonded them together, clearly connected them to each other in ways that seemed really alien to me at that point in my life. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. So you went to four different places around the world, three months each. For people that haven't read the book yet, uh, what were those four places? Um, so we spent the entire calendar year 2017 traveling, and yeah, it was three months in each place. We started in New Zealand. Uh, we lived for three months in Wellington, New Zealand, uh, on the North Island. Then we went to the Netherlands, where we lived in a little medieval city called Delft. Then we moved to Costa Rica for three months uh, for the fall, where we lived on a beach on the Pacific coast called Samara. Um, and then we moved uh, to the middle of the country, to the middle of the United States, to a small town in West Kansas called Hayes, Kansas. Wow. I know they're all completely different. What made you pick those four places? And because they're so different, it's probably hard to pick. But if you had to pick, what was your favorite place out of all those that you've been to? Well, of course, it would be impossible to compare one place to another, except for that our favorite place was New Zealand. Like, <laughs> mile. You're not the first person to have that answer. Everyone I know that goes to New Zealand loves it. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's just it's like a I mean, I'll talk about it more over the course of this conversation, but it's just like a, a perfectly working society where everyone was fun and friendly. And also it's beautiful. Mm. And so if you like picked it up. Right. You know, if they somehow God picked up New Zealand tomorrow and dropped it off the coast of North Carolina. <laughs> we'd move there in a heartbeat. The only problem is that it's like a 74 hour flight away. <laughs> yeah. Um, but so as far as choosing each of the places, we had a couple of different considerations in the mix. One was that we wanted to find places that would challenge us in some way. You know, we were, we, by making this trip, we were acknowledging that there were things we wanted to do better as a family, that what we were doing right now wasn't working. And so we wanted to take things that we weren't that good at and go to places where those things were central to family experience and see what happened and see how we could adapt. So for example, a place like New Zealand, where not only is there great quality of life and in general, happiness is at a pretty high level as measured by various scientific and pseudoscientific studies. Um, there also is the, the core of New Zealand family life, it seemed to me based on interviews that I did, was about the outdoors, living in the outdoors, making use of the tremendous, incredible natural environment in that country. And we're a very indoors family. We mostly live on our phones. Um, and so giving ourselves that challenge seemed like a way to stretch ourselves and force ourselves to do something that we might not do otherwise. Similarly, in the Netherlands, you know, the thing that we weren't seeing in our life up till now that really seemed appealing and difficult to us was living in a place with this sense of rigorous enforced equity. There's a very firm belief among almost all Dutch people that it's 
everyone should be exactly the same as much as possible. It's very tacky to, for example, drive a fancy car or wear a super nice watch or send your kids to 24 hours of SAT tutoring before they take the SAT and then another 24 hours before they retake the SAT or to, you know, to put your family above others for any reason. And we live in a, a pretty well-to-do suburb outside of DC and North Arlington uh, in Virginia. And and needless to say, that is not what we see there. We see people building huger houses and buying fancier cars and and scraping and struggling to give their kids every possible advantage over every other kid. And so living in a place with this rigorously enforced equity where, where it's widely believed that the goals of the many should always outweigh the goals of the one seemed really interesting and hard, but, but worthwhile. Mm-hmm. And then we also wanted to explore places that, you know, satisfied various parenting fantasies. You know, Mm. this was a dream trip in a lot of ways. And I wanted to explore what happened when you chase those dreams. So the dream of moving to a beach, right? Moving to a beach in the tropics and subsisting on coconuts and monkey meat and, uh, and (laughs) you really uh, were eating monkey meat. (laughs) Right. Oh, absolutely. Of course. That's, that's uh, universal in any tropical beach experience. No, no, we just heard the shrieks of the monkeys from far away. Um, But just like, but you know, throwing it all away and just like living on the beach and surfing and swimming every day and losing all your cares to the sound of the ocean outside your door. Like we wanted to see, presumably it can't really actually be that great. We'd fuck it up somehow. So we wanted to see what that would be like. Uh, And then with Hayes, there were a couple of things that drove Hayes. One was that you know, I knew I was going to write about this experience. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was important to me in thinking about what that project would look like to acknowledge that we were very dissatisfied with our American way of parenting. But that's not the only American way of parenting, like being an insane East Coaster obsessed with where your kid is going to go to college, even though they're only nine, is mm-hmm. not the only way of being an right. American parent. It seemed like we ought to experience a different way of being an American parent. And that's also. I think I think the small town fantasy does really hold for a lot of people, especially city dwellers. They sort of think, oh, there's a kind of simplicity in small town life, um, a kind of closeness and community that I'm not feeling right now. And what if I could just like Doc Hollywood it and move to some small town somewhere and become beloved, a beloved country doctor or whatever? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So when you floated this idea past your wife, I can imagine there was a fair amount of resistance. But what happened when you when you guys started to socialize this with your kids because they're you know, I'm I'm sure they're pretty, they were pretty plugged into their friend group, into their schools, and the idea of being uprooted and taken around the world, while it may be your fantasy and my fantasy, I don't necessarily know that that's like a, a nine-year-old's fantasy. Well, I will say that I it was not actually a struggle to get it past my wife. She was pretty all in. Um, I mean, I think that she, if anything, was having a harder time at that point uh-huh. in 2016 than I was. She was knee deep and she's an, an attorney, a first amendment and media attorney. She represents media companies. And that spring she was knee deep in this, in this truly terrible case that she was working 70 hours a week on, uh, that would eventually be like the most upsetting moment in her career, uh, when they lost in like truly terrible fashion. And it really shook her sort of beliefs and everything that she thought her country stood for and her country's legal system stood for. And she also was feeling stressed and upset. It didn't help, I'm sure, that I would just like go off to Iceland for a week. And so when I pitched it to her, she was like, yes, I'm in. Let's like, you find a way to do this and I'll Mm -hmm. do it. With our kids, it was a lot different. And with our kids, we sort of presented it that summer, the summer before we left on the trip. 
we did like a big unveil, um, you know, where we where we gave them this big news and we sort of expected them to like jump up and down and be so excited. We, we sort of presented it like, you know, those videos people do where they're like, we're surprising you kids. We're all going to Disney World. <laughs> yeah. And then the kids go insane and they <laughs> like scream and jump out the window. Uh, we thought it would be like that. And there there was some screaming. Uh, <laughs> But it was really was mostly like disbelief and annoyance. And it for my younger daughter, Harper, who is very deep into her friend group and who is very uh, socially inclined and and who for whom that's very important, that was what she immediately responded to. She liked the idea of adventure, but she hated the idea of leaving all her friends yeah. for a year. Like that was very hard for her immediately. And she she sort of absorbed that fear and uncertainty into becoming very involved in asking questions about the logistics of the trip and what everything would be like and you know how long will this flight be and how long will that flight be and what month will we be in Kansas and why are we going to Kansas? <laughs> and for Lyra, our older daughter, who at the time was uh, 11, it was much more a matter of just like shutting down and grimly trying to deal with this thing that we were making her do. And in the end, you know, she's a kid who – who doesn't particularly like adventure at all. She's very, she's very homey. She's, I think, somewhat sheltered. She doesn't really like going out. She's not particularly social. I mean, she's a real introvert. And so the the thing that we were asking her to do, she knew immediately was going to be like a huge lift. And the more we talked about what the specifics of it would be, the way that because of what we wanted to learn and because of what we wanted to do, we would be meeting a lot of people and talking mm -hmm. to a lot of new families and making a lot of new friends. Like everything we said about that just seemed like worse and worse to mm -hmm. her. Right. And so what that led to was, you know, once we finally went on the trip, this all this sort of bottled up resentment turned into this steadfast unwillingness or reluctance to do the stuff we wanted to do because in her view – she had already agreed to do a completely insane thing because she had no choice, which was the trip. Right. And so each time we were like, well, let's also hike two miles down to this beautiful cove. She'd be like, I'm already doing this crazy thing and I have to do more. <laughs> right. <laughs> How did you, you mentioned, and I, as a dad, I completely resonated with me as that time does just fly by and we are all so busy and you mentioned smartphones and the kids on the screen. How did you guys handle screen time on your year abroad? With wildly varying rules and results in <laughs> almost every place we were. Uh, the kids did not have phones at that point. They had iPods that they used that were not, that did not have cellular data. That had been what we had before. And though they were agitating for phones, the trip gave us a really great out for a year. We could be like, look, we can't afford an international data plan for you two yeah. for a year. Do you, I mean, that costs probably thousands of dollars, we told them. Um, <laughs> Tens of thousands. Right. Yeah. I mean, we're, we took out a second mortgage to afford ours. <laughs> yeah. um, so that helped a little, but it meant still that they had, you know, they had Wi-Fi on those iPods and they had, uh, they could text people and they could be on the, on, you know, on, on the internet, on the web, on browsers. It did not stop being a struggle over the course of the trip. Mm -hmm. And in some places it was a huge struggle, some place like New Zealand where we found ourselves, Ali and I found ourselves like enraptured by the beauty of the place that we were and very eager to be out and about all the time. Whereas Lyra felt like 
the last connection she had to her ordinary life were her internet friends mm -hmm. uh, who she associated with on various fan fiction forums. And every time we took that away from her, we were like stripping the last vestige of normalcy away from her. And so we ended up having sort of widely varying rules. In New Zealand, we had rules that really closely resembled what we had at home. You know, one hour on a school day, an hour and a half on a weekend. After that, you're done. Um, and there was a lot of pushing back against that. At some place like Costa Rica, where we our experience there was that we ended up just being just like unbelievably bored almost all the time uh, because we were there in the <laughs> rainy season, and and so it was it was raining almost every day, and we were stuck in this beautiful house with each other, and and there weren't that many people that we made friends with, and we found that their screen time stretched. Sometimes for almost entire days, <laughs> as did ours. And we would sort of reconnect at dinner and be like, well, what did you look at on the internet today? <laughs> uh, did you guys, uh, I mean, I'm assuming at some point, maybe not the whole time, but I, I, the kids were in school at different points on the trip, right? They were in school for almost the entire trip. So, we, um, so they, yeah, we thought a lot about that. Did they develop friendships and, and was it enough time for them to kind of get plugged into a new community in each place? Or was it sort of like they're dropped in, they were the new kid, and just when they were starting to feel comfortable, they were pulled out? It really depended on the place. In New Zealand, for example, which is a country, or at least in from what I saw, is a culture very devoted to opening themselves up to new people and embracing strangers. Mm -hmm. They both made very tight social connections in their classrooms. They both at all the places we went to, they went to the local public schools. And they immediately made large groups of friends at, you know, at differing levels. For Harper, those friendships were tight and intense and she did things with them every day at school. For Lyra, they were looser but still meaningful and restricted to at school and close relationships that she made with girls in her class but that didn't extend out of the classroom. Mm -hmm. But both of them made those connections and then – and then we tore them away and took them to a new place, <laughs> the Netherlands, where well, our our experience really, for everyone, our experience was that it was very, very difficult to get people to make friends with us, to get people interested in what we were doing, that they tended to view us as, well, they're short timers who are only here for three months. So mm -hmm. what would be the point of upending my orderly existence to befriend them? Uh, and where the girls both really struggled to make friends in school. Harper made a few, um, one who she is still in touch with. Lyra didn't really make any. And we, too, had struggled a great deal to make friends in that environment. And so they sort of, you know, our experience, the adult and kid experiences mirrored each other. Where we struggled, they struggled because it seemed like we encountered similar vibes in our life as they did in their schools. Yeah. Do you feel like getting out? of your own like rut and routine at home, do you feel like that forced you guys to spend more quality time or appreciate you as a family, appreciate each other more? Or what was your experience at the end of that year? Yeah, I definitely think it did. I mean, I think over the course of the year, there were times when we felt like a like smoothly functioning family unit where everyone was really listening to each other and paying attention to each other and attuned to each other's needs and getting through days in constructive and helpful ways to each other sometimes. Sometimes we were just like four animals at each other's throats all day because there was nothing to do and we were driving each other crazy. But the end result of that entire year of all the different situations we put ourselves in, all the different challenges that we had to overcome that we did eventually overcome together, sometimes we overcame them simply by 
bailing after three months and going somewhere else. Mm -hmm. Sometimes we overcame them by banding together and finding solutions to these problems, but we did survive them all. And when we came home at the end of that year, I really did see and still do see a much greater sense of our family as a four-person team, mm. a unit moving through the world in which we all affect each other in ways that we think about a lot more, in which we all can support each other in ways that are a lot more visible to us than were, than were visible before we went on this trip. That's awesome. Would, if you had to do it again, would you, would you do it again another year away? I mean, I sure would, but my children have told me that they'd murder me if I even suggest such a thing. <laughs> One of my favorite pastimes is, nerd alert, by the way, exploring all the unique benefits of individual healthy foods. But I'm a functional medicine practitioner, so it's kind of my jam. Uh, but did you know that flaxseed mostly known to be a great fiber source, is actually good for shoes. I didn't know that either. Uh, so Kenneth Cole uses flax seeds actually in their new Gentle Souls collection, which was created to integrate trend and comfort. The shoes are made with memory foam, sheepskin, leather, and flaxseed. There are actually little pillows with flax seeds placed inside each footbed, which are designed to mold to the shape of your foot. Pretty cool. And you'll really appreciate the Gentle Souls shoes if you've ever bought a pair of shoes because you liked how they looked, only to end the day walking home in blisters. It happens to the best of us. But with Gentle Souls, you get a great modern look and the comfort factor you need. In addition to their women's collection, Kenneth Cole recently launched the men's version of Gentle Souls, which is very exciting. So now we can test drive them for ourselves, and you only have to wear them once to become a fan. And you can get 20% off your first pair of Gentle Souls when you visit kennethcole.com. Just use code GS20. That's GS20. And we have the last name, Kenneth and I. So that's pretty cool too. What, what countries would you choose if you were to do it again? Oh, man. So uh, one thing, the first thing that we would do if we were going to do something like this again is we would make an enormous change in the planning process, which is something that we re really did learn on this trip, which is that we would involve the kids in the planning. Mm -hmm. You know, we would not present them this fully formed thing that we were absolutely going to be doing for a full year on a plate and be like, aren't you delighted by this gift right. we've given you? We would we would talk to them. We would hear from them about where they wanted to go, about what they wanted to do, about what appeals to them about different places. We would encourage them to do research on those places. Um, and so I don't know what those four countries would be because I think it would – I think the goals of such a trip and the planning process would be so different. Mm -hmm. I will say when we initially started planning this, we started with a master list of like a hundred different places uh -huh. that we wanted to go um, and eventually winnowed it down painfully to these four and – you know, the idea of spending three months or more in Buenos Aires seemed unbelievable, like a, like a beautiful and, uh, and fascinating culture to spend time in. The idea of spending three months in Senegal uh, or somewhere else in West Africa seemed totally interesting to me. I mean, obviously, we thought it would be great to be like in the south of France, but someone already wrote a book about French children, so we couldn't <laughs> yeah. do that. One of the lessons in the book is to really cultivate – the relationships with the people around you, with your family, with your friends, as a dad, as a husband, as a parent, I mean, through your experience uh, over that year, did you cultivate any practices that, that you still use today to enrich that relationship? Yeah. I mean, especially, so with family, the practices were cultivated 
less than they were sort of hard learned over long struggles, right? Like listening to my kids and taking to a much greater extent into account their opinions, even on stuff where I felt like I definitely was should be the decision maker. Mm-hmm. Like that was a hard fought battle that I'm still sort of struggling to put into practice, but doing so more. But I think that one place where we really saw it, you know, as you mentioned, had to do with friends. A real lesson of this trip for us was just how valuable the friends in our lives are to making our family feel uh, at home in a place and feel like there uh, there's a world and a, a larger um, universe of human beings mm-hmm. in which we play a role. And the the struggle to make friends at times and the rewards when we succeeded on this trip were so extreme that it really ended up putting into practice a bunch of sort of friend cultivation techniques that I really have continued using as I got back, ranging from just being a lot more diligent about checking in with people, Mm -hmm. um, about setting up like regular friend dates with people to get together, about thinking a lot more about how our kids and their kids interact and whether that interaction is something that will be useful to our kids or not. And it also built in me a kind of, I guess, shamelessness maybe or, or lack of pride in acknowledging to myself how crucial that is. And that mm-hmm. is a lesson that came pretty early in the trip when I, you know, when we first landed in New Zealand and we we met a couple neighbors and they were great and they seemed great, but we were worried about whether we would make friends. And I literally went on a radio station in Wellington on at Radio New Zealand, like a nationwide radio station. And just flat out said, we need friends. If anyone wants to be our friend, my, here's my email address. And only in New Zealand can, can you recruit a, a new friend group like that. But, but I don't think it is only in New Zealand. I mean, in New Zealand, it worked <laughs> right. better than anywhere in the entire right. world. Like, I, you know, like 15 people emailed me and we ended <laughs> yeah. up becoming close friends with many of them. That's awesome. But the kind of openness that that suggested yeah. to telling people, adults, grown adults, grown ass adults who you're trying to become friends with, hey – I, I would like friend. to become friends with you. <laughs> yeah. You seem great. Yeah. Let's hang out. Like we talk all the time to our kids about how, well, if you want to make friends, girls, you just have to make an effort. Right. But we weren't always making that effort. Right. Yeah. Um, and the ability to be open and to risk rejection, which definitely comes to risk making that overture and then finding mm-hmm. out that actually you don't like hanging out that much together. That definitely happens. But it was so rewarding when it did work that I've tried to bring that home and try to be much more clear and open in mm-hmm. those relationships about how valuable those friends are to me. Yeah, I was I was wondering, because when you start the book in Iceland, this whole idea of these community pools as being um, sort of a sense of the centering you know, community, if you will, and then you, you meet this enviable family that seems very tight and close, and all of that, as I was reading that, I kept thinking, well, this is, yes, this is all about being part of the fabric of community, which is something that I think for a lot of us in the United States is very different because we live in suburbs or or if we live in suburbs, we don't necessarily have that the same sort of daily interaction that you have in smaller towns uh, or even in the city where everyone's on their own on their own path. But then rather than looking at the community element of this that as an inspiration, you decide to like up and leave and go in and, and completely disconnect from your community and then make it even more difficult to be connected to a community because you're coming into a complete random place where you don't have connections. But it seems like 
you were able to, in certain circumstances, to build that sort of community. And then obviously in other places like Costa Rica, you didn't find that as much. Definitely. You know, it was a challenge that we made for ourselves and we knew that that would be a struggle. And we knew that it was a, it was a self-created struggle, right? We It's not normal actually to live this way. The thing that I think of when you mentioned that most of all, the place that reminded me most of all of Reykjavik, honestly, uh, was Hayes, Kansas. Like, hmm. you know, obviously, Reykjavik is, a, I guess, maybe a marginally bigger city than Hayes, actually. Uh-huh. It's quite a small city. Um, but it's much more cosmopolitan. It's very European. It's very different. But in Hayes, very quickly, we became enmeshed in the community that had found several different uh, sort of loci of, of community orientation, right? Several different places uh, focuses of the community, whether it was in a, in a community theater that I think if I if I had been presented with it in Arlington, I would have thought of as sort of like laughingly amateur, mm-hmm. laughably amateur. But in Hayes, it was like a truly meaningful and moving experience to be part of this. Or the library, this sort of small center of culture in this town where a bunch of librarians were like working very hard to create a place where every teenager in Hayes could feel comfortable and at home and safe. Finding these little places where people for whom the town of Hayes was home and for whom the community around them was important had made little community centers for themselves who then welcomed us into those little community centers was really moving and and was really valuable in making me realize that whatever our lives were going to look like at the end of this trip, they needed to involved me doing that, me stepping out and finding mm-hmm. ways to involve myself in parts of the community, even if I wasn't in Iceland where it was easy to find the pool, finding ways to do it. And coming back to Arlington, that's been one of the goals that I've been happiest with and proudest of is is that I, all of us, have been much more focused on finding how Arlington can be the town we want it to be mm. instead of complaining about the things that it wasn't. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What was the re-entry like for you guys when you came back? Uh, our kids had no problem whatsoever <laughs> re-entering. Did they just fall they back like, into their friend group and into their routines? Basically, they just like settled back in. There were, Harper said there were like two days where people were like, oh, you're back. Where were you? <laughs> uh, and she would explain it and they'd be like, that's crazy. And then two days later, it was fine. Um, and, you know, they there were some academic struggles for mm-hmm. them. They As Alia had worried and I had sort of brushed off like oh, they'll be fine uh they did struggle for i was like a solid semester um to sort of get back up to speed and catch up with the math that they hadn't quite gotten or i mean i guess harper will never learn virginia history uh, <laughs> but that's fine but basically they just folded right back into their lives you know with i think some recognition and acknowledgement of the things that they had seen and the the value that that experience had but not with like enormous changes made to their lives. For Ali and I, it was a little bit tougher in part because the trip had so defined everything that we were doing for several years mm-hmm. and and so divine, defined our self-image that like returning to our same house and our same jobs at the end of it, mm-hmm. like we risked a little bit of like that, well, what the fuck do we do now? Like right. why? Mm-hmm. But finding the ways that the trip helped us to make small and large changes in our lives and the ways it had brought our family together in in real and substantial ways, I think eased that 
a little bit. Like we mm-hmm. were coming back to the same house and to our same lives, our same jobs, but we clearly weren't the same family. Like we had a different relationship with each other. And so that was, I think, inspiring more than frightening. Yeah. And people are probably wondering, like, how did you afford to leave for a year? Did you do that on a budget? Uh, what were some steps you take you took to to afford doing this? Yeah, yeah. Well, so yeah, we. I mean, we we spent a lot of our savings. We worked through the trip. Uh, my wife is an attorney, and a lot of the work she does is vetting news stories, and so she was able to do that from the road. Um, I work for Slate Magazine. Um, I continued doing that, plus I also was writing a different book <laughs> while I was on this trip. Um, and so, you know, we worked and made our salaries and tried to keep to a budget, although that budget often just went completely like haywire, you know, it's like when we landed in New Zealand and we needed a car and I had this cockamamie plan to buy a car because then I would just sell it at the end of the three months. And clearly we would not lose any money at all because I would be such a sharp um, deal maker when in fact we lost like $4,000 on that car. <laughs> um, like it didn't always work, but we, you know, we made it work. I mean, that's an, it's an investment that appreciates over time because yeah. you obviously the kids are going to, as they grow older, uh, they're going to look back on this time and they're going to be in some incredible life lessons that that are just so unique to that experience that they wouldn't never have had otherwise. I mean, I definitely hope that that's true. And I, and I do think that was the decision we made, right? The decision we made was we're going to have less money in exchange for having this different kind of relationship with our family. And in that respect, as a one-to-one trade, it definitely worked. Like mm-hmm. it paid off the way we wanted it to pay off. Yeah. And is and I think will only appreciate in value over time. As to whether the kids will, like as they get older, appreciate uh-huh. it more and more, your lips to God's ears. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Do you have any like insider travel tips after going through all of this that you you can share with us? Especially for like other families that might yeah. be considering a sabbatical. <laughs> From life. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. One thing is that you don't need to pack nearly as much as you think you need to pack. Um, We started with like six enormous suitcases. uh, And by the end of the trip, we were down to three. And even that was like slightly, like they weren't all the way full. I mean, that's a good good lesson for life in general, that we probably don't need as many belongings as we have. That's true. Yeah. Well, I mean, part of the lesson of the trip was like learning, oh, you know what? I'm actually, I'm fine just with three shirts. I just wore three shirts for the entire year of the trip. And then at the end of the year, I threw them away. But like, that was all, that was, I was fine with those uh-huh. three shirts. I did not need a whole closet full of shit. Yeah, this has been a really inspiring conversation. I, I don't have a family yet, but I love the idea of experiential learning. And, and one day, hopefully, if I do have kids, of taking them around the world. Uh, I love what you've done. And your book is a great book. It's really, it's really a fantastic book for anyone who's interested in doing this sort of thing. Thanks. I mean, my hope is that coming out of this, that people who read the book know that the goal should not be to do something necessarily as insane as what we did, mm-hmm. but to find an adventure that you think your family will be bad at in interesting <laughs> ways and then go do it. Wow. Good stuff. Yeah. Sort of like kind of bucket list stuff. You know, I, I, I did a big trip like that a long time ago on my own, not with, with family. Mm-hmm. I know when I was a kid, I was I had a little more wanderlust, so I always sort of fantasized about the idea of going around the world with my family. Yeah. We never did it, but it was so cool. Yeah, I to be we as people all probably think of that as like what 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 would that be like? And the fact that he did that with a full on family and two yeah. kids, 
uh, and taking that leap of faith and making it happen. I mean, that's really awesome. And the lessons you learned through it, um, he just, he got obviously got through a lot of them in the, on our conversation with him, but reading the book, uh, really some priceless life lessons. Yeah, really cool. Well, you travel a lot with your family, but it's not the same, not the you same. know, going to, going to Hawaii yeah. for a week is not the same as like Living. uplifting and going, I mean, we're going to try this for three yeah. months and then we're going to try this for three months. Right. And they, kids went to school there yeah. and uh, they worked there. So they kind of immersed themselves in the culture and in the, and the community during that time, which, you know, it sparked, it's, it started for him when he went to Iceland and saw that sense of community yeah. and he saw it all around the world. Yeah, I mean, I think it was interesting that he pointed out in the places where his kids struggled to, to, to find connection with the community, he and his wife also had the mm -hmm. same sort of struggle. Yeah, I wonder though, like as I was talking to Dan, if we, even like where we are day to day, if we limited the amount of time we're on technology and just were in the same room with, with each other as families, whatever that, whatever your family looks like, I wonder like how much it would be enriched. Like we don't have to necessarily go around the world no. to get well, that. Well, that's what he said, you know, just choosing something that you're all equally uncomfortable at doing and have that adventure. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the reality is it's it's so true. When I was just taking the elevator up here to the studio, mm -hmm. I looked in the elevator, there were six of us in the elevator and everybody, I was the only one that was not on my phone. And I was only not on my phone because I was running late and I wasn't <laughs> going to be like flipping through my phone. <laughs> but everybody else is, everyone's on their phone looking yeah. down, not no eye contact. Yeah. In a, in a silo, which is, it's almost like we're, we're every, we've talked about this a lot, but we, mm -hmm. it's so easy to get stuck in not communicating with the people around us. Yeah. Difficult to connect to a community. Totally. I, that Pixar film, Wally, -E, I'd say it too much, but it's prophetic. If you haven't watched it, watch it. They, mm. this, the future of the human race, <laughs> according to great, Pixar. Great movie. But basically, for more information on Dan Coyce, check out a copy of his book, how to be a family. It's out now. You can also check out his podcast, Mom and Dad Are Fighting. Got a question you'd like us to answer? The Goop team is keeping a running list for us, so just hit them up at Goop on Instagram or Facebook. At the end of every episode, we'll be answering a question from one of you guys. If you have a question about us or about men and wellness or really anything else is on your mind, just let us know. As a functional medicine practitioner, it's been fun seeing the questions that have already come in on different food philosophies and ways to approach health and well-being. And I love to talk about food and cooking and, well, reality is anything. I just love to talk. So send your questions over to the Goop team on Instagram or Facebook. As Goop likes to say, nothing is off limits. All right, so it's time for another edition of Ask Me Anything, and Mark wants to know, what is your favorite source of protein? Um, well, mine, well, to, to talk about protein, you have to understand that there are, proteins are made up of amino acids, which are the building blocks to protein. And we mm -hmm. have what's called essential amino acids and non-essential amino acids. Essential amino acids means our body is not getting them uh, internally, we have we're not making them internally. We have to get them through our food. Uh, so not all proteins are created equally. There are many, many proteins out there, but you're not necessarily getting the essential amino acids and the amounts that you need. It's not to say that you have to get all the essential amino acids at every meal. That's not what I'm saying. But you have to make sure that you're getting them on a regular basis to be optimally healthy and provide your body the building blocks it needs to be super healthy and feel good. Uh, so my favorite source of complete protein probably has to be wild-caught fish. 
And then secondly, just because I like the taste of them, are eggs. I think those are two complete proteins that I really enjoy. Uh, mm. Those are like ketotarian or like a mostly like a pescatarian or vegetarian keto approach. And like a plant protein that I like because it does have a good array of uh, essential amino acids is Sacha Inchi, which is like a, I think it's called Incan peanut, uh, but mm-hmm. you can get that in the form of just this Sacha Inchi nuts or you can have like the protein powder too so those are three of the ones that i i like a lot Hmm. how about you nice my favorite source of protein probably fish as well um wild wild caught fish like wild salmon or or just from a from a health standpoint or mackerel i love mackerel the oily fish fish i like a lot yeah the smaller oily fish that tend to have lower um uh, mercury mercury levels yeah uh, and then I, I, I love um, grass-fed beef um, in moderation. Yeah. You don't really need that much of it. And we talked a lot about this. Uh, we've talked a lot of, about bone broth on the, on the podcast. But yeah, mm-hmm. I love I love bone broth as a yeah. good source of, of collagen and, um, and some healthy fats and protein as well. That's it for today. Thanks for hanging out with us. Will and I would love to know what you think about Goop Fellas. If you have a chance, please rate and review the podcast here. And if you like what you're hearing, hit subscribe and pass it along to a friend. To see more, head to goop.com slash goopfellows. And we hope you'll be here again next Wednesday. Talk soon.